So we're going to be looking at just the next passage about the wedding at Cana. The wedding at Cana, John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And if you are taking notes this morning or want to take notes and follow along on your outline in your bulletin, I've just entitled the message, Saving the Best for Last. Saving the Best for Last. You know the passage well. Let me read it and then we'll dive right in. We read this, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, we pray just one more time this morning that you would magnify Christ in our midst, in our hearing, through this passage, as we consider the truth that you are saving the very best for last. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, since George Washington took his first presidential oath in 1789, the inaugural address has been one of America's most treasured political rituals. Traditionally, presidents have used their inaugural address to outline principles which will guide their administration, though more pressing topics such as war and economic challenges have often set the stage for the most dramatic and the most memorable of speeches. As we anticipate the new administration of America's 45th president, I want you to listen this morning to a few excerpts of the best-known speeches given in the past by some of America's most beloved presidents. President George Washington, 1789, in his first inaugural address, quote, It would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nations, and whose providential aid can supply every human defect. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which we have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some providential agency. Abraham Lincoln, 1865, in his second inaugural address at the end of the Civil War, he said this, quote, With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who has borne the battle and for his widow and for his orphan, 
to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1941. In the face of great perils never before encountered, our strong purpose is to protect and perpetuate the integrity of democracy. For this, we must muster the spirit of America and the faith of America. We must not retreat. We are not content to stand still. As Americans, we must go forward in the service of our country and by the will of God. President John F. Kennedy, 1961. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, in order to assure the survival and the success of liberty. In the long line of history of the world, only a few generations have, granted, have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. So, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. President Ronald Reagan, 1981. My fellow citizens, our nation is poised for greatness. We must do what is right and do it with all our might. Let history say of us, those were the golden years. When the American Revolution was reborn, when freedom gained new life, when America reached for her best. Well, you probably remember at least three of those speeches, maybe from Kennedy and from uh, Ronald Reagan and from uh, maybe even Dwight Eisenhower or Dwight uh, um, FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt. But what I'm here to tell you this morning is even though those are kind of inspiring speeches of great American presidents that give us a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration, especially as we face a new year, human presidents, as good as they try to be, bring flaws and failures and never accomplish all that they set out to do. And what I'm going to tell you this morning is that we're going to look at the true inauguration of a new ministry in the Lord Jesus Christ. And while he was technically inaugurated at his baptism, which we briefly looked at in John chapter 1, we're not going to see him put his administration into action when he starts turning the water into wine. The truth is, Jesus is perfect. He will bring completion to all that he sets his hand to. And so in the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, he did not give a great speech. Rather, he performed a great miracle. It wasn't just about talk, it was about action. It was about turning the water into wine. It was about the dawning of a new day. It was about the kingdom of God that had now arrived in the power of the new covenant, and he's about to overturn the world on this day as he turns this water into wine. This is what the Jews had longed for. This is what the prophets had written about. This was truly saving the best for last. Genesis 3 talks about how there is one who will come and crush the head of Satan. 2 Samuel talks about a king whose kingdom will know no end. Isaiah 9 talks about a child that would be born and the government would be upon his shoulders. That is all focused in the hope, not of our 45th president, that we will pray for him 
just like we pray for each and every president and leader in our country, our hope today in the beginning of 2017 is squarely placed on the soldiers on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And I don't know what kind of year that you had in 2016, and I don't know what kind of year you're stepping into in 2017, but what I can tell you today is that there's hope for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be here this morning, and you may be transitioning into this new year, and your marriage is broken. Your kids are running away from the gospel and out of your home. You may have just lost your job. You may be suffering from an economic downturn. You may be frustrated about things that have been going on in your life for years and years, and there's just a little bit of a, of a depressed spirit in your heart this morning. Now, this morning, I want to declare to you that Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus is the answer for you today. Jesus is the answer for your marriage today. Jesus is the answer for your family today. Jesus is the answer for your fears today. Jesus is the answer for your anger today. Jesus is the answer for your depression, your anxiety, and your hurt. It's only in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can have hope. It's not in your money. It's not in your retirement. It's not in your family. It's not in anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put your faith in this nation. Put your faith in Christ. And if you look to him today, you're going to be greatly encouraged. You're going to be greatly encouraged, no matter if you're coming in riding high on the end of 2016 or you're riding low. This is an optimistic message because I can declare to you that the best is yet to come. And I think that's what we see unfolded here in this miracle that we'll see in Canaan. So in order to kind of unpack that, let me give you five headings this morning as we examine this account so that you can see that the best is yet to come. Here's the first heading. Number one, the people present at the wedding. Let's talk about the people who were at the wedding that day. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so we know on that third day, just after Jesus had called Philip and Nathaniel to himself in the previous passage, we know that he is now in Cana, which is a small town about nine miles north of Nazareth. It's where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, nine miles south of that. Actually, it's where Nathaniel was from. It's just a small city as well. And according to uh, and, um, in Cana, uh, the, the, uh, the, the scripture tells us is where Jesus performed his first miracle. Now, it's a, it's a real town. I've actually been there twice in Cana, and I've had some of that good wine. Just kidding. All right. But in Cana, it's a real place. It's where Jesus did his first miracle. And notice he does it at a wedding. And like today, weddings were a major part of the first century society. But unlike today, in those days, a wedding celebration would often last for up to a week. And most of that would take place prior to the wedding. On the night of the ceremony, the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house, and then they would escort her and her attendants to the groom's house where the ceremony and the banquet would be held. And the whole celebration would end with the actual wedding ceremony. Now, let me give you a quick list of the people that we know attended this wedding. At a wedding, you'd have to have a bride and a groom. So a bride and groom would have been there. There would have been, obviously, family and friends would have been at this wedding. The people of Cana were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Jesus was there, and he brought with him his disciples. So that's who's at this wedding. And by attending a wedding and by performing his first miracle there, I believe that Jesus sanctified both the institution of marriage and the the ceremony itself. It is significant that Jesus 
breaks out his first wonder, his first sign, only eight of them, remind you, recorded in the Gospel of John, and he does his first one at this wedding. And so before we dive on into verse 3 and kind of finish about the miracle, I couldn't help but just to give you a quick biblical review of what a marriage is about. All right, so the next couple of blanks, just a couple of reminders about marriage. A, marriage was instituted by God. Marriage is not determined by man, it's not created by man, and the laws of the land don't really govern what a true biblical marriage is. Marriage is the sacred union of a man and a woman whereby they become one in the sight of God. In fact, God himself performed the first wedding between Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, where he states, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we live in a day and a time where marriage has been redefined. And I'm telling you, it's not coming from the Bible, but it's coming from the sinful heart of man. From the beginning of time, it was one man, one woman for all time. It wasn't same-sex marriage. It wasn't polygamy. It wasn't any other form. It was one man for one woman for all time. And we as Christians today, of all people, need to be bold about defending marriage. We need to quit tucking our heads, our tails, and bowing our heads and bowing out of that argument because we're afraid of our culture. Now, one man with one woman for all life is what marriage was intended to be. And that's God's prerogative to define marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And Jesus is affirming that here in John chapter 2. Second truth about marriage is this. Marriage is designed to be lifelong. Marriage is designed to be lifelong. That's the indication that a man and a woman would be married for life. Because we also know, your next blank says, God hates divorce, Malachi 2, 16. It's intended to be lifelong. God hates divorce. Now, I believe the Bible gives us two biblical grounds for divorce. And again, I'm not going to get distracted and give a whole sermon on marriage, just a couple of highlights here. But the two biblical uh, grounds for divorce would be unrepentant adultery and the abandonment of an unbeliever. Otherwise, divorce is wrong and it is a sin. Now, I know I'm saying that to a congregation of this size where some of you in here may be divorced. And if that's true of you, I want you to know we love you. We reach out our hand to you. We are sorry about what happened in your life. My own sister's been divorced. So it is not a pleasant thing, and it doesn't always happen according to our plan. It is part of the fact of life. At the same time, I I want you to know that if you're divorced, you don't have to wear a scarlet letter. You don't have to feel the guilt and shame of your past. It may not even been your fault. We're here to say we love you, we want to come alongside you, but we're also here to say we will fight for marriages in this church. And if you're in a marriage and you're in this church, and you're thinking about a divorce, and there's no biblical grounds, and even if there are grounds, we're still going to try to counsel you and work with you to stay married for a lifetime. We believe that in the hope of the gospel, every marriage can make it for a lifetime. Now, I know it takes two to tango, and you may be thinking it's all your spouse's fault and not your fault, but nevertheless, let's not water down the institution of marriage, which was invented by God, and I believe affirmed by Christ in this very text. The next blank I want to give to your attention would be wedding ceremonies or a time of celebration. 
Are they not? In a time where people are eloping, people are getting married by the justice of the peace, they're taking weddings, I think, in many ways, and just making it more of a, more of a, uh, of a, of a quick event rather than a great celebration. And I think that there's just a great uh, precedent in many ways. Now, again, if you're here and you're eloped and you went to Vegas, I want you to raise your... No, don't. All right, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just saying there's just something about the fact that they have a great celebration where Jesus turns water into wine. That's a big deal. It should be a great time of celebration, and though it's not really about the ceremony itself, don't forget your next blank, Jesus should be invited to your marriage. It's not just about the ceremony, it's about your marriage. When I do premarital counseling with couples, it seems like a lot of that time is oftentimes focused on the ceremony, and especially the bride is planning it all out, and boy, she wants to look beautiful on that day, and she ought. She wants everything to go right that day, and we hope it does. But I'm here to tell you that the wedding day is not about the bride. It's not your day. It's Jesus' day to be exalted as the Lord of your life. It's Jesus' day to be put on display as your marriage hopefully mirrors Christ and his love for the church. So I think that we need to sometimes refocus our uh, idea of it's not just about the ceremony going well. It's about the marriage going well. It's about every day for the next 70 years that you live in light of the gospel and how you love your spouse, submit to your spouse, lead your spouse, serve your spouse in a way that would honor the Lord. All right, sorry, I just had to get that off my chest, some stuff about marriage. Is that okay? We talk about marriage in here from time to time. While attending the wedding ceremony is a significant event, you remember marriage lasts for a lifetime. And I want to remind you this morning, you need to invite Jesus to your marriage. There's some of you in this room who are married, and Jesus is not the center of your marriage. And I know this because many in this room have, have confessed to me that, you know what, our spiritual life isn't where it ought to be. We're not praying together. We're not in the Word together. We don't worship together regularly. We just kind of come and go, and our marriage is really struggling. And if that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you to make 2017 the year where you commit to pray together every day. As a husband and as a wife, you just determine we're going to get on our knees. We're going to just hold hands together uh, by our bed. We're going to do whatever it takes to pray together every day and to read God's word together because we need a marriage that will last a lifetime. And if you're doing nothing to preserve your marriage, you're going backwards. Right? Just when you think you've got it all together, the roof will cave in. You've got to be working hard, depending completely on the power of the gospel and on the Lord Jesus Christ on a, daily, on, on a daily basis to have a marriage that honors the Lord. If you believe that, say amen this morning. All right, let's move on to number two. The second uh, principle I want to bring to you is the problem exposed at this wedding, verses three through five. And let's just look at verse three. And your next blank says, the wine ran out. The wine ran out. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is a problem that was definitely bad news. It would have been embarrassing for the groom and his family, and some historical traditions even tell us that the groom could actually be sued if they ran out of wine at the ceremony. I mean, remember, it was at his house on his turf. And make no doubt about it, those Jews wanted their booze. All right? So if you ran out of wine at the wedding, that was a bad deal. So this is in a very embarrassing moment. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, picks up on this and immediately she brought this to Jesus' attention. Maybe she figured it was time for him to go public. 
Apparently, she wanted him to do something about it. And to her credit, she brought the problem before our Lord. In verse 4, your next blank says, let's look at this conversation between Mary and Jesus. In verse 4, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, again, in our vernacular today, this seems to be a little bit borderline disrespectful, does it not? You know, if, if some if some if some mom came up to you and said, hey, uh, John, I wanted to tell you this and this, and you were to look at your mom and say, woman, what has that got to do with me? Right? So in our vernacular, it kind of comes off a little bit harsh, a little rough, a little bit like, like Jesus is being rude. But let me just assure you this morning that Jesus Christ was never rude to his mother, unlike most of you teenage boys. Right? Jesus never scoffed at his mom. He never ridiculed her. He never disrespected her. He never disobeyed her. He simply reminded her that it's about him serving his heavenly father, not him serving his earthly mother. This was a point in time when Jesus needed to make it clear he was about God's plan and God's timing and not always about Mary's plan and Mary's timing. I think really Jesus is simply trying to redirect Mary's thinking so that she understands that he's the Lord. He will do what he does in his timing. And while he always submitted to and obeyed his earthly parents, they needed to understand that they had no business directing the Son of God. And neither do we. We have no business directing the Son of God. We need to be directed by the Son of God. If we're honest this morning, there are areas in our life where we try to direct God towards our desires and our timing, where we come to Jesus and we're like, hey, Jesus, I don't have a wife. I don't have a husband. I don't have a job. I don't have kids who are graduating and going into college. I don't have a house, right? I I haven't been on a date in months. And you're bringing Jesus your problem, and that's good. In one sense, that's a good thing. But just make sure you're not bringing it and demanding him to do something about it right then and right there. Right? So this is kind of what Mary seems to be doing, coming, saying, hey, I want you to do something about it. And Jesus reminds her again, my hour has not yet come. Now, that's a common phraseology that it's used throughout this gospel. And that hour coming is really the hour of the crucifixion. A little bit later in John chapter 12, he talks about the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the passage where he says, the hour has come. The verse right before that, verse 23, the hour has come. And then he talks about this illustration of like a seed dying so that it can bear much fruit. Christ is about to die so that he can give life to many. He's about to be crucified so that we can be saved by his sacrifice. And so Jesus is simply saying, hey, look, My hour has not yet come, maybe for the full revelation and for the full crucifixion resurrection. That's going to come a little later in his ministry. But let's look at Mary's response here in verse 5. When Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, his mother said to the servants, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. And so at least we see here the timeless directive. Your next blank there, the timeless directive. Mary shows great wisdom great humility, great patience. She could have fought against Jesus, but no, she submitted to Jesus. She gave us a directive that is true for all of us for all time. Do whatever he tells you. 
Could it be any more clear of what we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be doing whatever he tells you. So it's not about your time and what you think needs to be done in any given moment. It's about looking to Christ, bringing our needs to him, and then waiting for him to direct us. It's about having that attitude of that we're going to do whatever he tells us. You know, I remember when I was working in my career as a physician's assistant in cardiovascular and thoracic surgery during the first year of my job when I was learning how to do heart surgery. I remember so many times the heart surgeon taking his hands and putting his hands on my hands and say, hey, Adam, I want you to feel of the heart. I want you to feel of this artery, feel the thickness of that wall and the pulsation of every heartbeat. I want you to feel the difference between this arterial wall and this venous wall of a vein, which has a much thinner uh, wall and doesn't have the same type of pressure. And he's just teaching me and he's telling me, I want you to cut here, hold this up here. Don't cut that, cut this. Right? And all I was doing was just following, even though I'd been to school, I'd studied anatomy and physiology, I'd operated on cadavers, with something about being in your first heart operation, you're just a little bit jumpy, you know what I mean? And whatever he said do, I did it. Now that's the way we ought to be with the great physician. Whatever God says do, that's what we do. And God wants to take his hands and put them sometimes on your hands and say, do this, don't do this, cut here, tie this off over here. Don't do this. And if you get outside of the great physician's hands and you try to take the operation of life on your own, it's going to end in a mess. And there were a couple of times I didn't quite follow what the surgeon said, and that's another story for another time. But the idea is we need to be following the chief surgeon. We need to follow the great physician of the soul. Are you following his every command? Are you allowing your hands today to be guided by his? What is it? What is it in your life that you need to let go of? What is it in your life that you need Jesus to take control of? Come to him this morning, this year, seeking him to say, you know what, I'm just going to do whatever he tells me to do. Now, again, with that being said, we've talked and I've preached many times on uh, hearing the voice of God and the will of God. It's not some mystical thing where he's just going to whisper it in your ear. I believe God directs us through scripture. He directs us through principles. He directs us by his providence. And that's a whole nother sermon again for another time. But we need to be willing to do whatever he tells us to do. Let's move on. The third point I want to make here at this wedding. Number three, the plan executed at the wedding. The plan executed at the wedding. Let's just look at verse 6 and let's talk about that next blank there, the Jewish custom. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So you guys probably know the Jews practiced ceremonial washings and they observed strict traditions. So it wouldn't be uncommon at a wedding to have purification jars there that might have been used as part of the ceremony. In fact, in Mark chapter 7, we read a little bit about this, this uh, custom of the Jews. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, Mark 7 verse 1, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there they have, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
All right, so all of this uh, in Mark 7 just talks about, again, there's an emphasis of the custom of doing ceremonial washings. And so that's why they had some jars, six stone water jars there. And so these stone pots would hold the water used for rituals of purification. And the stone was used instead of it being an earthen vessel because earthen pots could become unclean. These six stone jars would hold about 20 to 30 gallons each. And so that's a pretty uh, large supply of water that was there in the wedding. Now we look at the plan. The plan, as we see the next blank there, the command from Christ. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus wanted them to fill the water pots. He wanted them to fill it with water out of these purification jars. Okay? They did not keep wine, the best we can tell, in these same stone jars that they used for ceremonial cleaning. But Jesus told them to fill it up with water and to fill it up to the brim. And this seemingly insignificant detail is significant indeed in the way of demonstrating complete obedience as well as preventing any other room for any other substance to be added. And so these stone jars were filled to the brim. Okay? Complete obedience here is important to Jesus, not partial obedience, not if I feel like it obedience, not partially fill these stone jars with water. No, Jesus said, fill it to the brim. And in your life, when Jesus gives a directive, he determines that you should do it with your all. You ought to obey to the brim. You ought to obey, not half-hearted, but full-hearted obedience. That's what God requires of us. And we also see again that this is a miracle of transformation. Again, nothing else was added to this water. It was filled to the brim. So it's not like you could take some kind of higher dense you know, wine and pour it in there and then mix it up. No, the water was filled to the very brim. And then we also kind of notice from this the generosity and the grace of our Lord providing this wedding host with about 150 gallons of wine an ample supply that would last for many days for sure. And then Jesus did something very unique. He commands them to draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Now think about that for a moment. Taking water, again, out of the purification pots and taking it to the master of the ceremony to drink. How embarrassing this could be if Jesus doesn't come through. I mean, this is the point of no return. If you dip water out of that and you take it up to the head uh, waiter of the feast and he drinks old bath water and spits it out, I mean, we're just going to go from bad to worse. They have no more wine to now there's some kind of game or prank being played at this wedding. But why doubt Jesus? Has he ever failed you? Has he ever stabbed you in the back? Has he ever humiliated you? Has he ever asked you to do something that was wrong or shameful? Of course not. Jesus always gives the right directive at the right time. It might require us stepping out in faith, like Ben Candy, raising Lord knows how many thousands of dollars to go to Brazil, both in a one-time way and in a monthly support. That takes stepping out in faith. That doesn't just happen by itself. We've got to get to the point in our life where we're willing to do whatever God tells us to do, and we're trusting He is going to take care of it. It's God that makes it happen. 
It's not Ben Candy that raised that money. God provided an ample supply for this young man to spend years in Brazil preaching the gospel. We need to be a people that are listening carefully to the voice of God, primarily through Scripture, and then we're putting it into obedience as we watch God work in appropriate ways. Now, we're starting to see something else here, that the old ways of the old covenant had reached their expiration in Christ and in his ministry. What had been used by the Jews as a symbol of purification, whether it be at a ceremonial washing at a feast or an animal sacrifice or an emphasis on outward obedience, does nothing to change the heart. Jesus is going to transform an old ritual, the purification from these stone jars, to a new miracle. He's going to turn the old covenant into the new covenant with a new supply of mercy and grace. And let me explain that a little further as we look at our fourth heading. Number four, the praise rendered at this wedding. And let's look at verse nine here in the next blank says, something is different. Something is different. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. If you if you never read this before, you're kind of feeling the tension of like, uh-oh, did they, did they make a big mistake? Is he about to give it to them? And yet at the same time, you're kind of like, no, 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 Jesus is about to do a great miracle. He's about to do something awesome. And so the, the waiter tasted the wine, and immediately he knew something was different. He had no idea where it had come from. He just knew it was different, vastly different. I wonder if... If you've ever met somebody at work or at a dinner party, and they just kind of noticed that you were different. They noticed that there's just, they couldn't quite put their finger on it, but there's something different about you. How, how come you use a different language than everybody else in the office? How come you're not the one laughing at the dirty jokes? How come you're not the one going out to the club when people are hanging out after work hours? How come you're not playing the game everybody else is playing in the world? What's different about you? And hopefully when people taste part of your life by spending time with you, they notice immediately something's different about this person. This person is filled with joy. They're filled with purpose. They seem to have all the answers that we don't. I mean, Jesus has the answers, so we don't want to come across as if like we've got it all together because we're people who struggle too, right? But we know where the answer is. It's in Christ. And I hope that when we're in the world, that people notice something different about us. And this waiter knew something was different about this wine. In your next verse, verse 10, and the next blank says this, saving the best for last. Here's what the head waiter says. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The head waiter explains how usually people don't serve that good wine towards the beginning of the feast. I mean, sorry, they serve the good wine at the beginning of the feast, and they save the cheap wine for later, right? It's just kind of like you put your best stuff out first after people have drunk freely. In fact, many commentaries would say that phrase drunk freely means literally when people lose their senses and they don't know exactly what is going on or exactly their taste has even been dulled, then that's when you pull out the cheap wine. But at this wedding, the waiter notes that they had saved the best for last. One commentator writes, quote, Surely it was the sweetest, freshest wine ever tasted. This wine did not come from the normal process of fermentation from grapes, 
vines, the earth, and the sun over time, the Lord brought it into existence from nothing. Truly, this was evidence that He, the Lord Jesus, is the Creator. This is a miracle He did out of nothing instantaneously. Another wise man once asked, quote, How can a man turn water into wine? A wiser man replied, That's easy. When the water saw its Creator, it simply blushed. So no doubt about it, this was the best wine ever tasted. I don't care what if you're a wine drinker and you are a connoisseur, I don't care what your favorite, I don't drink at all, so I don't even know about that world. But if you are in that world and you drink wine, this has been the best wine ever, ever made, ever made by the Lord himself. And I want to take a moment here and bring home some important correlations between the cleansing of the Old Testament and the cleansing of the New Testament. Okay, I want to talk, talk about some, some similarities and differences. Remember, I'm telling you we're moving from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the purification being focused on these stone jars, to now there being new wine in these stone jars. And I think here there would be some correlations between the mediator of the Old Covenant and the mediator of the New Covenant. Both were mediators between God and man. Both led God's people out of bondage. Both were great prophets of God. Obviously, Moses was a mere man who was far from perfect, and Jesus was God who was perfect. Moses' first miracle was a plague turning water into blood, which speaks of judgment. Our Lord's first miracle was a blessing turning water into wine, which speaks of love. Moses gave the law, which was to be kept perfectly. Jesus saved us from the law because he was perfect. Moses could never be an atoning sacrifice because of his sin. Jesus, who never sinned, hung on a cross for sinners like you and like me. Don't ultimately follow Moses or the purification of the day, which would be really good works in your own effort and trying to do all the right stuff. Don't focus primarily on external rituals of religion. Focus primarily on the internal work of the Holy Spirit to transform your heart. God's got to do it in a miracle. If you're here today and you're trying to kind of come to church, you're coming through counseling, you're coming through a friend, you're here because it's the first day of the new year, and you think somehow if you start doing all the external things, that somehow that's going to change you. It's not. Jesus has to transform your heart from the outside, from, from the inside out, right? Through repentance and faith, he has to change you. And the Lord uh, is changing this water into wine in the same way he wants to change you. I don't care if you're raised in church. I don't care if this is your first time in church. God's got to do it in a transforming miracle to change the inside. And when he does, you will become the sweetest thing anybody has ever tasted. Right? It's not about you. It's about Christ in you. And the word, the, the, the word wine, the, the concept of wine, it's really a symbol of joy and of salvation throughout the Bible. You remember that passage in Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich 
food. In other words, that passage kind of teaches us, even in the Old Testament, we've got to start looking to the New Covenant, the New Testament, this new wine, the wine of the Spirit of transformation in our hearts, taking us from death to life. But listen to me, the world offers the best at first. The world offers the best at first, and once it gets you hooked, things start to get worse. Things start to go sour. But Jesus continues to offer that which is best until one day we enjoy the finest blessings in the eternal kingdom of God. This is what Warren Wiersbe adds to this passage, quote, but our Lord would certainly have a special message here for his people Israel. In the Old Testament, the nation is pictured as married to God and unfaithful to her marriage covenant. The wine went out and Israel had left, all Israel had left were six empty water pots. They held water for external washings, but they could provide nothing for the internal cleansing and joy. In this miracle, our Lord brought fullness where there was emptiness joy where there was disappointment, and something internal for that which was only external. I think maybe you're starting to see what we're talking about. In this miracle, Jesus is showing the best is always for last. Now look, when I say that, God's saving the best for last, I don't mean that in some honky Joel Osteen way. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, in the gospel, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the best is always going to come in Christ, right? If you're here and you're in Christ, you haven't even tasted the best yet. The best is still to come in the return of Christ. Even though you're in Christ and you're hopefully finding your satisfaction in him, when Christ returns, when all things are made new, I'm talking about the new heavens and the new earth, I'm talking about glorification, you can honestly say and have an optimistic life and say, you know what, the best is yet to come. I mean, you know how it is in life, you're kind of looking forward to something happening, like maybe even Christmas, kind of leading up to Christmas, and you can't wait till Christmas Day and open your presents, and then after Christmas, you start to kind of get those Christmas blues, and you're like, oh man, it's over, we got to tear down the decorations, I was putting the tree away yesterday, shoving it in a dark cardboard box in the corner of the garage, and I started to be like, oh man, we got to wait another year. You know what? But as a Christian, you really should never have a down moment in the sense of not thinking that somehow today and tomorrow and the next day could be better and better and better and better as I look to Christ, as I'm filled with his love, as I'm satisfied and feasting on the word of God. You can honestly say that every moment, no matter where you are in your life, the best is yet to come. It is coming, it is here, and it is still coming in the person of Christ. And it kind of ends this last point, point number five, the point made at the wedding, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so just quickly on this last point, I think that part of what's going on here at the wedding is what we've already mentioned uh, here about the inauguration of Christ's public ministry maybe technically inaugurated it as baptism, but this is kind of like his first work of practice. And so turning the water into wine was one of 35 recorded miracles, eight of them here in John, the others in the Synoptic Gospels. But the purpose of these signs, I think, was twofold. One, to manifest his glory. Two, they were to reveal who he really was. 
This miracle was to show that Jesus is divine. He is God's son. He is the long-awaited-for Messiah. His first sign is a gracious indication of the joy which he provides by the Spirit. And so why did he turn water into wine? Was it to be a blessing to those in the attendance of the wedding? Yes. Was it to be a special gift to the bride and groom? Yes. Was it to uh, show Jesus' love and compassion and the abundance of his grace? Yes. But don't miss the fact that this was also marking the beginning of the new fact that the kingdom of God was now being fully inaugurated. In fact, that's your next blank. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's a spiritual kingdom that began with Jesus and continues today into all eternity. The kingdom of God is now here. It is new. That's your next blank. It's been inaugurated. The kingdom of God is new while salvation has always been present by faith for those who look to Christ. In one way, this is still a new arrival of the new covenant. In fact, a little bit later, Jesus says the kingdom of God is now within you. It is in our midst. And while the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, it has not yet been consummated. That's your last blank. The kingdom of God has not yet been consummated. Jesus coming to earth the first time marks the beginning of the kingdom of God, but he did not fulfill all of it at that time. He's coming back. We sang about it this morning. He is coming back. And so if you felt like somehow the spiritual life of being a Christian is like not fully culminated, it's because it's not. Until you die and go to heaven where he takes away all sin and all shame or until he comes back and brings in the new heavens and the new earth, we're still waiting knowing that the best is still yet to come. And that's why I said at the beginning of this sermon that the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry here in John 2 outshines every U.S. president, every world leader, every administration that's ever been set up because all of those end. Half of them don't accomplish half the things they promised to. They all leave us a little disappointed, and they all will come to an end. Jesus will fulfill everything he's promised. The best is always yet to come, and he will return and set up a better kingdom on a better earth in his time and his way. And that's why we can say this morning to Placerita Bible Church, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come for our church. The best is yet to come for your marriage. The best is yet to come in your life because if you're constantly looking to Christ, then he is going to keep filling you knowing that he's saving the best for you for last. And so let me ask you a couple of questions this morning as we wrap it up. Number one in the take-home section, have you invited Jesus to your marriage? Let's make sure we're starting off 2017, not just inviting Jesus to the ceremony to do a great miracle in a one-time kind of way, but that we're inviting Jesus to our marriages to sustain us throughout this year and throughout our lifetime. Number two, are you willing to do this year whatever he tells you. Remember the directive that Mary gave to the disciples when she looked at him and said, hey, you better do whatever he tells you to do. Hopefully you have that mindset, whether you're a young man or a young woman or an old man or an old woman, that you would have the mindset to say, you know what? Whatever Christ tells us to do through the principles of Scripture as we pray and seek his direction through, again, the Scripture, we're going to do it. We're going to be willing to sacrifice. We're going to be willing to give. We're going to read through God's Word. We're going to start disciplining our children. We're going to give more to the church. We're going to reach out to our neighbors. We're going to serve more. We're going to do whatever it takes because we know that we want to be the kind of people who are trusting 
Jesus to come through, filling it to the brim, and he's going to do something awesome through your life and through this church as we have that kind of attitude. And then last, do you truly believe that the best is yet to come? Do you really believe that? I'm kind of sensing, possibly, a little bit of cynicism because of who we are as Americans. We don't really believe that. We're like, oh, Adam, whatever, man. I'm having... Things might be going good for you, but I'm having a pretty rough year. In fact, I have a terminal illness. I have a marriage that's on the rocks. I have kids who aren't coming back. I've been really discouraged. I've been waiting a long time for the best that's yet to come, but it still hasn't happened on me. If that's you this morning, let me encourage you to repent of your lack of trust and your little faith in a great God. And this morning, God would say to you, I believe through this passage, trust in him, wait on him and his timing and his way. We can honestly say the best is yet to come. In the words of J.C. Ryle on this passage, he writes this, close, uh, and I'll close with this quote, happy are those who, like the disciples, believe on him by whom this miracle was wrought. A greater marriage feast than that of Cana will one day be held when Christ himself will be the bridegroom and the believers will be the bride. A greater glory will one day be manifested when Jesus shall take to himself his great power and reign. Blessed will they be in the day who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beloved, lift your eyes to our risen Savior, and I can guarantee you this, Placerita Bible Church, if you look to Christ, your best is still to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great passage of scripture for us to look at such a familiar story of how Jesus turned the water into wine. And I pray, God, for every member of our church, every person who's in this room today, that we could honestly look at this passage and see the great and awesome character of our Lord how he affirmed marriage, how he transformed water into wine, how he shows us he is the mediator of the new covenant. And I pray that this passage today would be one that we would come back and back and back to throughout this year when we're having a rough day, when we're having a rough week, when we get that bad news. I pray we would come back to this portion of scripture and others like it, and we would be encouraged and comforted by the fact that the best is yet to come. And so, Father, some of us this morning are still trying to put new wine into old wineskins. We know what your word says about that, about how those old wineskins will just burst and the wine will be wasted. And so this morning, we need a new heart to go with the new wine of your spirit. And I pray, God, that you would bring redemption to those who are lost. I pray that you would bring revival to those who are saved. I pray that you would bring that new wine into this church, God, that we would drink full of the Holy Spirit and of your goodness. And we would live out our faith this year in a way that would magnify the gospel, that would be an eternal celebration, that would be an opportunity for all of those who see us would see the Father. I pray, God, that you would do a mighty work in each heart this day and throughout this year. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.